Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you got your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to be looking at just one verse, and actually I'm going to take two parts to do it because... Believe it or not, in one verse, there's a lot packed into it that we need to explore. And this is regarding the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church, believe it or not, has come under attack. Very few churches even talk about this anymore. In fact, it's not even on the radar. And a lot of them, in fact, are not just simply neutral about it. They actually attack any Christian that believes this. And I'm not talking about attack from the outside world when they make movies like Rapture, Palooza, and stupid things like that that Hollywood does. I'm talking the attacks are coming from within the church from other Christians. Do you realize that 70 to 75% of Christianity doesn't believe in an end time scenario, doesn't have a prophetic view of the end times, and could care less? And hence, the rapture then has been relegated to some tinfoil hat brigade. And yes, you're part of that tinfoil hat brigade if you believe in the rapture of the church. They have relegated this to uh, how Lindsayism or escapist mentality or that we're just devotees of John Darby and that we're just simply wanting to escape the bad reality of our lives. And I remember I was in an email discussion with Jan Markell about this. She made a recent video that she titled, From the Blessed Hope to the Blasted Hope. She did a whole video on why the church has went away from this beautiful, this picture that you're going to see with John of us being taken home to be with the Lord. And we were discussing things, and she says she can't hardly find anybody that even teaches this stuff anymore, that believes like you and I do, because they're all into social justice causes and trying to create a kingdom on this earth. That's not the blessed hope. The blessed hope is for our Lord to come back for us and remove us before this terrible time period. You saw in the prophecy video, all the things are happening in the world. They're coalescing. They're they're coming together to get the world ready for the tribulation. And that's what we're going to study in the book of Revelation. But the promise that you and I have because we're in Messiah is that we'll be removed from that period of time. We will not undergo that kind of wrath. Christ took our wrath. The church has been promised to escape that wrath. And we're going to explore that, and I'm going to show you that. But understand this. 2 Peter chapter 3 is being fulfilled in front of your very eyes. And what does that mean? 2 Peter chapter 3 talks about scoffers or mockers will come and will scoff at where is this coming, mocking the coming of our Lord. And here's the deal. The mocking is not just simply coming from the outside. It's coming from the inside of the church. You go to certain churches today, they're going to think you're nuts. But yet this was a mainstream teaching for the last several hundred years in the church. And now it's gone way to the social gospel. What happened? Well, the great apostasy is happening. And, and so because there, people are apostatizing, guess what gets attacked? The truth. Isn't it funny that preterism is not attacked, postmillennialism is not attacked, 
or any of the other divergent views, kingdom now, dominion theology, new apostolic reformation, all these end-time scenarios are never attacked. Guess what's attacked? A rapture and a pre-tribulational rapture and a tribulation. That's what's attacked. And even the kingdom is being attacked because they say, oh, the kingdom is now. If this is the kingdom, I'm very disappointed if this is the kingdom because I see a way different picture in Scripture. Okay. That being stated, then, we're going to flush out what we see with the rapture in this one verse. And it'll take us two sermons to do because I have to pull in all kinds of other issues. We're going to see a typology. I'll explain what this is in just a bit. But you're going to see a typology of a rapture of John to heaven. The same time you see that, I'm going to run parallel with the rapture teaching and I'm going to run with the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets is that fall feast, the first of the fall feasts, that has a lot of symbolism and language that Jesus actually used to explain the rapture and to explain his coming. And so I'm going to go into that, and it's going to take some unpacking to do. So if you've got your Bibles ready, let's read the one verse, and then we're going to unpack it and slice it and dice it and parse it out so we can understand every nuance of this passage. Verse 1 says this, After these things, what things? What is after? Well, if you understand what we've been studying in the book of Revelation, the after these things is he has taken chapters 2 and 3 and given a whole scenario of what the church age is going to look like. And we unpack that all summer long. So you go from the Ephesus church to the Laodicean church. Those are seven churches in between. That gives us a full picture prophetically and historically of how the church is going to function in each epoch period of time and how it's going to play itself out. So basically, then that was the mystery that the Old Testament never talked about that got revealed in the New. And the book of Revelation is in chronological order. Therefore, He's saying, after these things, after the church age, this is what's going to happen. But then before he explains what's going to happen, John says, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The heaven he's referring to is the third heaven where God is. There's three heavens according to the apostle Paul. The first heaven is the atmosphere around earth. The second heaven is the starry heavens where the planets and stars are. That's the inhabitants of the demons realm. That's the demonic realm. And then you have the third heaven where Jesus is, where God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and currently right now the saints. That being said, he goes, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me. So this is Messiah's voice talking directly to John, saying, here's the command, come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. And again, another timing element. But this command to come up here and this idea of I will show you the things that must take place, it's too timid, I guess, in your English. It's more forceful in the Greek. It's the idea that the things are mandatory, are necessary, and what I'm about to show you is unavoidable. I will carry this out. The judgment on the Gentile world must happen. I must put Israel in a pincer move to squeeze her in order for her to accept Messiah. So I'm doing this for reasons, and it has to happen. And so a couple things I want to note before we dig into this real quick. 
What you're now going to do as we study the book of Revelation is you're going to see the heavenly scenes. So God is going to explain to John the heavenly scenes because the heavenly scenes will then come to fruition on earth. But what he's wanting for John to see and for us to see as well, that it is important to see how bad things are going to get from God's perspective. Because if you do not have God's perspective, God's revelation, you will not make sense of the world especially during the tribulation. Now, we won't be here, but it's important for even us as prophecy students to understand why is God doing what he's doing? Because when we get into it, it is a nightmare. It is hell come to earth. It is every judgment imaginable at such a great extent, it nearly wipes out most of the human population on this planet. But to bring it to our own application, why does God give us his scripture? It's so that we can have his perspective on our own lives, on what's going on in our lives. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to make sense out of your own life. Life is very chaotic. Life is full of tragedies. A lot of people do things to you. You do things to yourself, and life gets chaotic. If you do not have God's perspective, you will lose it. You will lose reality, and you will go to worldly ways in order to cope with reality. But God is saying, you see things from my standpoint so that you can have faith, so you can be stable, and so that you don't lose a grip in reality. We have to see that. Now, let me get into the typology so you guys understand what I'm talking about. What you're going to see is a typology. John is having a rapture-like experience. And this is very Jewish. Typologies are all over the Bible. Now, if I point them out, you'll start understanding. What typologies are is a person, an event, or a thing that happens, and then it foreshadows something bigger that will happen later on down in biblical history. And so when you look at points of similarity, and you have to understand your theology first, and then when you look at it, you'll say, wow, that seems similar to the theology I know. So with types and shadows... You start with theology first, and then you look for the typology. So let me give you a few so you kind of understand what I'm talking about. When you look at people in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, you have to see that on the Jewish level as well. The Jewish level sees that there's patterns in the people of the Old Testament. For instance, when you study Joseph's life, there's about 150 parallels between his life and the life of Messiah. So what happens to Joseph eventually happens to Jesus, but on a much grander scale. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. They don't recognize him at the first time. They only recognize him the second time after he reveals himself. It's a perfect first and second coming with Israel. The brothers represent Israel, and Joseph represents Messiah. And again, Joseph is a suffering servant. He pictures Jesus in his suffering state. And you'll see that with him. You'll see Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt through the Exodus into the Red Sea. Well, Paul will pick up on that and say, when they went to the Red Sea, that was like their baptism. And so the whole picture of the Exodus of coming out of Egypt is Messiah taking us out of the world and getting us out through the Exodus. And we get baptized, so to speak. And then we get into the desert, which is immaturity. And then we move into maturity, which is the promised land. It's all a typology of a reality, These are real events that happen, but the events point to something. King David, when you see King David take on Goliath, you should understand that that's the battle Christ will have with the Antichrist. David and Goliath is a picture of that future battle. 
which is really nothing, right? David just threw a sling and knocked him out and cut his head off. When Messiah comes back, the Goliath of Antichrist will be taken out just like that, even easier than what David did. These are all typologies. Paul will use Sarah and Hagar in Galatians, representing two covenants, a covenant of works and a covenant of blessing and promise. Then you'll see things, and you know this, Passover lamb. What does that symbolize? Symbolizes the lamb of God, Messiah. The brazen serpent that Jesus talked with Nicodemus about. The brazen serpent represented Jesus on a cross. And everyone who looked to the brazen serpent were healed. Jesus even used that typology. The tabernacle, if you ever study the tabernacle, the tabernacle speaks of Messiah and who he is. All the parts of the tabernacle does that. The abomination of desolation. It happened with Antiochus Epiphanes, but Jesus said it's going to happen again in the future with the Antichrist. And then you'll see events that are typological. And I want you to see this so when you read your Old Testament, you'll see the events. You've got to know your theology first, and then you'll see it. Noah's flood is a picture, a first of judgment, but it's also a picture of judgment that's going to happen in the tribulation. Not with water, but with fire, but it's still a picture of judgment on the entire world. That's the typology. And also about Noah's flood, it's interesting about Noah's flood, as you get into rapture typologies, and there's rapture typologies all over the place. Enoch is a rapture typology, and when he was just taken to, into heaven, the flood is a picture of the rapture. How so? When Noah and his family went on the ark, they were taken off planet earth. How so? By the water. The water lifted them off the planet. The people who are on the planet were judged. It's a somewhat similar rapture-type experience where they're taking off the planet. So the parallel you see with Noah's flood is we're taken off the planet in the rapture as well. And you'll have all kinds of things like that. Another thing is Daniel. Uh, you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why didn't Daniel go through the fiery furnace? He was with them. Only Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through the fiery furnace, and the Son of God was with them. But Daniel was removed from that. It's a picture of the rapture. It's a picture of the removal of the church, where Israel goes through the tribulation and the church is removed. Daniel's a picture of the church, and then obviously Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being Israel. And you continue on. Why did Jacob have two wives, Rachel and Leah? Because Messiah has two wives. Messiah is married to Israel, and he's married to the church. So Messiah has two wives, Rachel and Leah. And you continue on, over and over And the problem what's happened is, why do us Gentiles not see this? Is because we're not trained to see it. This is very Jewish. This is the way they thought. They thought in patterns. So when you see John being taken up into heaven so he can see the heavenly scene, anyone that knows the rapture doctrine instantly sees, oh, he's raptured. Just like the two witnesses in the book of Revelation who died and came to life, and then they were taken up into heaven. It's a picture of the rapture and the resurrection. And you'll see all these typologies because of Jewishness. And and thank God for the Messianic Jews that have brought this to our attention. And so what I'm using here, you can write these down or you don't have to. This is just for if you go on Jeopardy, you can know this. Here's some Jewish interpretation of how how do you see this stuff. The first one is a Peshat. P-S-H-A-T, a Peshat. That is what's called the simple meaning of the Scriptures. Now, every Gentile knows that, the Peshat. When you read your Bible, okay, it's saying this, so-and-so went here, so-and-so went there. That's the level of Gentile interpretation, by the way. When you read your commentaries, they're typically written by Gentile scholars who simply stay with the Peshat 
interpretation of the text. They don't see go any further than A went to B, and then it happened C, and it's just all mechanical, and you have to understand the simple meaning. But yes, that's where most Gentile interpretations come from, and that's where they stay. That's why they don't see typologies. The other one is called a remez, R-E-M-E-Z, remez. And this is what we're dealing with with typologies. A remez means there's a hint of something deeper, a hint of something deeper. Remez, a hint of something deeper. This is, you can see this all through the Gospels. When Matthew says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, that's a reference to Israel, right? But there's something deeper there. It's a hint that he's referring that to Messiah. And where was Messiah? In Egypt, right? And Messiah came out of Egypt and went back into the promised land, did he not? And so that's called a remez. It's a typology. So Israel was a typology of being called out of Egypt And it pointed to Messiah eventually being called out of Egypt after Herod had died. That's what we're dealing with right now with typologies. It's the Remez Jewish interpretation. And so you start seeing biblical characters all in this line. Just incidentally, if you want this, and if you're going to go on Jeopardy, the next one is Drosh, D-R-A-S-H, Drosh interpretation, which means the application of the text. That's what we do a lot, too. We explain the text, and then we apply it. And so, again, another passage Messiah gave to the disciples, he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's an application of church discipline. Messiah was applying it for them and how this flushes out into their lives, and we try to do that as well. The last one, sod, S-O-D, sod. Sod means the hidden meaning behind what's happening here. Now, here's the deal. The reason I'm giving you this is not just for extracurricular. You will have to know the four Jewish interpretations as you move through the book of Revelation. The sod is the deeper meaning, which means that when you see the word dragon, what should you think about? A red-tailed dragon at the Halloween store? No, you should know that John is saying there's a deeper meaning. I'm referring to Satan, when I say dragon. And so he's going to use sod-level language in the book of Revelation that all has references to the Old Testament. So when you see 666, there's a deeper meaning just than a numerical value. When you see the whore of Babylon, it's not just a fake lady riding on a beast. It symbolizes something deeper, that she's a religious element that rides on a government. John expects you to know this. This is why the book of Revelation is such a mystery to Gentiles is because they don't know Jewish interpretation. They don't know how to read through what John is doing. And guys, I'm going to tell you this. Whether you read the Gospel of John or the book of Revelation, John is thoroughly Jewish. If you don't get a grip on the culture of Judaism and the Jewish era of his time, you won't understand what John is trying to say. People think, well, for instance, I'll give you an example. Just I get another worth 25 cents, I guess. When Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, a lot of your commentaries that are written by Gentiles think, oh, Nicodemus didn't know what he was talking about. And he has had no clue what being born again meant. No, he didn't. From a Jewish messianic perspective, Nicodemus knew exactly what Jesus was talking about, but he had a different frame of reference. The Jews already had a concept of being born again. They just thought that you were born again in different ways that you had to be married, you had to be a ruler of a synagogue, that you had to be bar mitzvahed, and so on. There was like six different ways to be 
born again. So when Jesus says you have to be born again, Jesus has given him another paradigm that doesn't fit the cultural context. That's why it took Nicodemus almost three and a half years to figure out what Jesus was saying because he had a Jewish cultural mindset on what born again means. Again, I, just, I show you that as an example as your commentaries will fail on this every time, and they fail with the book of Revelation. If you want to understand the Scriptures, go Jewish. Understand things from a Jewish perspective. It's written by Jews for goodness sake. It's amazing. Okay, that being stated... We're going to now deal with the setting of the rapture and the Feast of Trumpets. I'm going to bring that in. So I'm going to do two or three things concurrently as we go through the text. Okay? So the first thing we want to see, number one, the first parallel with what happened to John in his typology experience of being raptured to heaven is the first parallel is the timing of it. The timing of it. And so he says this, I will show you the things which must take place after this. As I mentioned to you, after what? The church age. So what I did, and I'm going to continue to do this as we go through the book of Revelation, I gave you a chart, or there's actually two charts on one page. I'm not going to go through all of this today. I want to give you this so you have it handy in your Bible. And this comes from Dr. Frutenbaum. The first page, you should see the seven churches, Right? That's Revelation 2 and 3. That's what Jesus is referring to. What must come after what is the seven church ages. And then you have the dates of them relatively. And then you have what's called, you see, the lines of pre-tribulational events like World War I, World War II, State of Israel is reborn, Jerusalem under Jewish control, Russian allied invasion of Israel, which is Gog and Magog, uh, one world government, ten kingdoms, rise of the Antichrist. All that will happen prior to the tribulation. All those events are pre-tribulational events. We possibly could see them, or we possibly could be raptured. As you see, the period of the rapture is nebulous because there's no sign attached to it, and it appears that it's going to come at the end of the age because it hasn't appeared since 2,000 years. So this little chart will help you out. This is what Jesus is referring to. He goes, after this age, the present age that the disciples are in and the present age you and I are in. We are in the age called the church age. The age of grace, okay, but that age is going to end. And if you turn to the back side, what we're getting ready to go into is the first half of the tribulation. This is what Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you what's going to happen after this age. And right here, this is the first half. This is the first three and a half years of the seven-year period of the tribulation. And you can see all the cataclysmic events that transpire from there with the signing of the peace covenant with Israel, with Antichrist, which sets the whole thing in motion, according to Daniel chapter 9, and then the conquest of the world by the Antichrist. There'll be a first world war. You have famines, persecution and martyrdom of saints, post-rapture saints, general convulsions throughout nature. They'll have a lot of uh, cosmic convulsions. And then the seventh seal uh, is opened, and that leads into the trumpet judgments. Heaven's waters destroyed, salt waters destroyed, Everything on the earth is destroyed. Okay, so that's the first three and a half years. I give you this so you can kind of understand, oh, okay, this is what he's talking about. There's different epochs of time, and these are what he's going to set in motion. Okay, that being the case, it is important to look at the timing of when Jesus calls John up. When did he call John up? After his revelation and messages to the church, then he calls John up, right before the sealed judgments. 
And again, we're not trying to build doctrine on this because the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture has already been set in other passages, and I'll show you those passages. What we're saying is, look at the parallel of when John was called up to heaven. And again, if you want to flush this out a little bit more, John is a typology of the church. And again, there was a veiled reference to the church, and especially those who would remain alive until the coming of the Lord through John. Do you remember on the Sea of Galilee? Do you remember the conversation he was having with Peter, with, and John was following behind? He had just told Peter, you're going to die. You're going to be martyred. They're going to outstretch your arms. They're going to take you where you don't want to go, and they're going to basically martyr you, Peter. Eventually, you're going to get your wish. You wanted to die for me. You're going to get it. And Peter's like, hey, wait, hey, I don't want to hear that. And then Peter immediately turns around to John. What happens at that exchange? He says, Peter, if I want John to remain until I come, what is that to you? There was a veiled reference that part of the church, and John represents the church. The gospel of John is written to the church, by the way. It's very Jewish, but it's, it's written to the church. Matthew's written to the Jews. Mark is written to the Romans. Luke is written to the Gentiles or Greeks. And John is written to the church. So John obviously represents that. It was a veiled reference to there's going to be portions of the church that are going to be alive when I come back. And it was a reference to that. You also see the reference... Um, and I'm going off the top of my head, in the raising of Lazarus. Do you remember that exchange? I am the resurrection and the life, right? He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he who believes in me will live. Did you see the difference? He makes two statements. The first statement, he who believes in me and dies shall live. And then the other one, he doesn't say will die. He says, they, they who believes in me will live. No one catches that. It's a reference to the church believers that some church believers are going to die before he comes, but he'll resurrect them. They're going to live. And there's other church believers that are not going to die and be alive until he, remain, until he comes for them. Right there in that passage with Lazarus, he's referring to the rapture and people not being, being dead until he comes back. So it's all through the scriptures about this. So again, another timing element. Let me bring this in. This is Revelation 1.19 says this. Write these things, and this sets out the whole course for Revelation. Write these things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall take place after this. Notice the three things, the things which you have seen. He's seen the vision of Christ right there in 95 AD in Patmos. That's what he's talking about there. And then he says the things that are, the church age that John lives in, in 95 AD, and even till today, the things that are, we're in Laodicea, by the way, and then the things that take place after. So the whole thing is set out in Revelation 1. The whole chronology is set out there. That's the brilliance of the book of Revelation is it's written chronologically rather than in the Old Testament and even some in the New. It was all sparsed out and you had to piece the thing together like a mosaic. John just lays the whole thing out in chronological order. Hence, if it's laid out in chronological order, he is saying the church age happens, and then when it's done, I call the church up and remove the church, and then I start the program with Israel with the seven-year tribulation. And again, the rapture doesn't set off the tribulation, but 
it's a defining moment because it's the end of the church age is what we're talking about. Now, interesting enough, let me bring another passage so you can understand what I'm talking about, the end of the church age. Paul points this out in Romans 11, Romans 11, 25 through 26, and he says this, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Now, what he's going to get ready to do is spring on a mystery about the church in Israel, okay? Lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, the idea of blindness in part has come to Israel, that's not a mystery. That's not the mystery. Everybody knows who reads their Bible that if you don't believe in Messiah, the penalty for not believing in Messiah is spiritual darkness. It's the same thing with believers. Those who don't cooperate with Messiah, don't grow, get become spiritual blinded. That's a penalty for not growing or not accepting Messiah is you get blinders on. Okay, what's the mystery is this. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That term had never been used before. Don't get this confused with another term, the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles is when Gentiles will occupy Israel until the second coming. This is called the fullness of the Gentiles. It's a reference to the church. And notice what comes after it. And all, so all Israel will be saved. Well, he's be packed in a lot of stuff in there. Explain that. What he, Paul is saying is there's a timing mechanism on the rapture, on the church age. The church age has been started Jewish, but it's primarily Gentile. And the Jerusalem Council in Acts figured this out early on. That, oh, wait a second. God is including these Gentiles. In fact, the church is primarily Gentile now. He's calling in all these Gentiles. And when the last Gentile is saved, then the rapture will happen. Now, we don't know when the last Gentile will be saved, but there will be a last Gentile. That doesn't mean that Gentiles won't be saved in tribulation, but as far as a Gentile, as far as becoming a body of Christ in Christ, which is a technical term, that there will be one last Gentile that gets saved, and then that's it, and the rapture will happen. Again, we don't know when it happens. Only God does. But what happens afterwards? Notice what Paul is saying. That when the fullness of the Gentiles come in and the church age is over, then what happens? Israel's program starts again. And so all of Israel will be saved. Now, if you know prophecy, eventually that happens at the end of the tribulation. So Paul's compacting a lot together saying, look at the order I'm laying out for you. End of the church age, then he deals with Israel, and then eventually Israel gets saved. That's what I want you to see. That's what's important in the timing mechanism of this. Hence, it leads itself, it leads itself into supporting already established doctrine on a pre-tribulational rapture, that the rapture happens prior to the tribulation. And this is based on other main and plain texts like 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, John 14, and other passages like that. But Nonetheless, God is calling out the Gentiles right now. And you can see this in Acts 15. They said God is calling out the Gentiles for his own people. And then when that's done, it starts. Okay. So that gives us some clues about things. That gives us some other groundings to understand the book of Revelation. Let me add one more thing to before we move on. This is extremely important so you can understand Revelation. Since the last Gentile will be saved in the church and then the church is removed in the rapture, you'll see in the book of Revelation as we study that there are tons of people getting saved. 
especially in the first half of the tribulation. You'll see a multitude that can't be numbered that comes out of the tribulation from the witnessing of the 144,000 Jews, from the two witnesses, from all kinds of evangelism going on. And that's a multitude of not only Jews, but Gentiles as well. So people are getting saved in the tribulation. There's a mass revival in the tribulation. Here's the interesting thing. There is no revival for the church. There's a revival for the tribulation, but there's no revival for the church. So anyone says, oh, there's going to be a great revival before the Lord comes. No, it ends in despair with our small remnant that's left to be rescued, and that's it. But here's what I want you to know. It's a technical thing, but I think it's important for you to understand. In Christ, you'll see several passages say there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, right? You've seen those passages, two of them, right? And as the technical term is being in Christ or in the body of Christ, which means that all racial distinctions disappear once you become a believer in the body of Christ. But you know what's interesting? When you get into the book of Revelation, the ethnicities start appearing again like they did in the Old Testament. Really? Yeah. John will not use the term ecclesia, body of Christ, in Christ, until you see the church married in heaven in Revelation 19. And there's another, I think there's another reference in Revelation 22. But he will call people who get saved in the tribulation saints. He will not use any technical term as far as ecclesia in the book of Revelation. You say, what's the big deal? Because in the Old Testament and in the tribulation period, ethnic particulars are kept. And here's the ethnic particular. It's not someone from Zimbabwe or someone from South America. No, 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 no. There's only two ethnicities that God recognizes, Jew and Gentile. That's it. That's the two ethnicities God recognizes. And those distinctions are then starting to be made in the book of Revelation all throughout. In fact, even in the kingdom, that distinction is kept between Jew and Gentile. Think about this. We don't have any Jews in our church. I wish we did. It'd be great. But as you're seeing, the church is primarily Gentile, okay? There's no full-blood Jew in our church. Typically, they're in Messianic congregations, maybe in L.A., New York, Texas, and in Florida, different places like that. The point is, John will start showing ethnic distinctions between Israel and the rest of the world. That's how God divides up the world, is Jew and Gentile. He doesn't do it necessarily for the body of Christ, which again, again, guys, gives more support for a pre-tribulational rapture, just in the simple terms John is using with saints. Okay, now we got to get Jewish. Now we got to get real deep down into understanding Judaism, so to speak, not the rabbinic Judaism, but biblical Judaism, the one Moses set up, and you have to understand the feasts of God. Because now we're gonna, we need to deal with the Feast of Trumpets, because the Feast of Trumpets is, deals with a lot with the rapture. As you know, let's go to the Feast of Trumpets, or feasts. Okay, we have the Feast of the Lord. Notice the term, they're called Feasts of the Lord. This is extremely important. They're not called the Feasts of Israel. Even though people refer to them as the Feasts of Israel because they were made under the Mosaic Covenant with Israel, and Israel's supposed to participate in them, yes, as far as Torah is concerned, they're called the Feasts of God. And I can tell you why. They extend beyond Israel. They include the church. 
It not only includes Israel, but it includes the church. And that's why I think the term feasts of God is appropriate because it's beyond Israel in some of these feasts. And I'll show you in just a bit. You had the spring feast, which were all fulfilled by Messiah on the very day of the feast. And you know this pretty well. A lot of people are a little fuzzy on the, the fall feast. Passover was to be celebrated by the Jews, right? Now, everyone knows that. Unleavened bread. Let's back up. Messiah was sacrifi- sacrificed on Passover on the cross. Unleavened bread is Saturday, the day he was in the tomb. His body did not see decay because he had no sin. That's what the idea of unleavened bread, which we're participate today in, in the Lord's Supper. Because he had no sin, his body did not see decay, according to the Psalms. And it's because he's unleavened, no sin. So he's in the tomb on unleavened bread. And then three, the first fruits, I guess one, two, three, right in order. That's, where, that's the day Messiah was resurrected as the first fruits from the resurrection. And then you go into four weeks uh, later, or Pentecost, like 50 days later. And as you know, the church was born on Pentecost. Israel was given a chance to come in, to come into the body of Christ, and, and, and the remnant did. But as a nation as a whole, it did not experience its own Pentecost. It will later on in the tribulation, they'll have their own Pentecost day. But see, this is why it's called the Feast of God. Pentecost included us Gentiles being incorporated into the covenant, the new covenant of blessing. And that being the case, so you can see it extended beyond. Well, what's happened since then? We're in the summer. The summer months between Israel's calendar was a four-month interval. We are now in that interval called the church age. We're between holidays, so to speak. And then the first fall holiday that came was the Feast of Trumpets. This is the fall feast. Trumpets, Leviticus 23. And then the next one that followed 10 days later was the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. This is the day when Israel's sins would be forgiven. It's all picturing the end times. I'll explain this in a lot more. And then after that was tabernacles or booths. It looked to the day back in history when Israel was in booths or tabernacles in the desert. But it also looked forward that the kingdom age would dawn one day. So you had the three feasts right back to back like that all showing something, all picturing something, not only what Messiah will do, but extenuating to what Israel will will happen to Israel and also what happens to the church. That's why they're called the Feast of God. There's multiple, multiple applications with the Feast of Trumpets. So you don't want, you're going to read people on the Feast of Trumpets and they're going to say, well, it's only for Israel or it's only for the church. And that's both wrong. It's for both because the Feast of Trumpets was the only feast that God did not tell them why to blow the trumpet. He didn't tell them anything. He just said, I want the shofar blown, and that's it. That's it. And he didn't say why. So the rabbis conjectured a bunch of understandings of it based on scriptures and different things, and that's what we're going to do is look at all the conjectures And notice what you're going to see is that Messiah used the language of trumpets to explain the rapture. And so it's very interesting to see this. Okay, let's get the names, a couple names under our belts. The first name that you'll see with the Feast of Trumpets is Rosh Hashanah. You probably hear this a lot. It means the head of the year. It's the, the civil new year. They celebrate the birthday of creation. They, the Jews believe that God created on this day, created the heavens and the earth on that day. 
And we don't know, but that's what they came up with. And they have tons of things happening on this day. This is the day that Abraham took to sacrifice Isaac. And they have all kinds of other things happening on this day. Again, it's all conjecture, but it's uh, coming from their oral law. Anyway, Rosh Hashanah, that's the common name. Now, now we get some interesting names, and I want you to see this. The second name that they use is called the opening of the gates of heaven for trumpets. The trumpet is blown, and on this day, the gates of heaven are opened, and they're going to be opened for a period of time to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This is very interesting. The gates are open. In the text, what did John see opened? A door. An entryway, right? Into heaven. And so a lot of scholars will put this as saying, yeah, John sees an opening in heaven, just like in the Feast of Trumpets, it signals an opening of heaven. Huh, interesting. Let me explain this a little bit more. This is a Jewish rabbinical understanding. This is the way they thought. They believed that that gates of heaven were open on this day. And God would receive the prayers of the Jews during this time. And, and they were to be prayers of repentance. They were to examine their life, repent of this, and get ready for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And so God would hear them and listen to them. And if they had done enough repentance and gotten their hearts right... Then on Yom Kippur, God would forgive them. But at at this point, when the gates were open, that they believed that their destinies were fixed. That they had a 10-day window from the beginning of Feast of Trumpets to Yom Kippur to make their decision about what they're going to do with the Lord and if they're going to repent or not. And they would make that decision. And if whatever that decision was, was sealed on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And they, they simply had uh, to make a decision within that 10-day period. Let me flush this out a little bit more. Stay with me. It's it real technical. I'm going to talk about this, but the Feast of Trumpets was a two-day celebration because you couldn't figure out when the moon would rise. It was a new moon, okay? So it was two days. Then the days of awe, there was 10 days of awe, but seven of the ten days were the time they were getting ready and repenting, searching their hearts, and that was a seven-day block. Then on the tenth day is actually Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when all the counts were settled. I want you to notice something in the pattern of the celebration from trumpets to Yom Kippur. Two days of celebration. Seven-day interval of penitence, repentance, get, get themselves squared up. And then the final day on Yom Kippur, they, their decision is sealed forever. Do you see something there? There's a seven-day pattern I want you to see. How long is the tribulation? Seven years. How long is the day of penitence between trumpets and Yom Kippur? Seven days. Do you see the pattern? That's called the typology. They're practicing something every year that gets them ready for the big one. When they're going to have to go through seven years of hell come to earth to figure out if they're going to accept Messiah or not. And day of atonement is the second coming. And at that point, their fate is sealed. You see the parallels. So gates of heaven are opened in that day, figurative. And even with John, a door in heaven is opened. Amazing.
And number three, the other term for it is Yom Hadin, the day of judgment. It's also called the time of Yaakov's trouble. It starts Yaakov's trouble. This is Revelation 6 through 19, Yaakov's trouble. It's Jacob's trouble. Who's Jacob? Israel. Why do the Jews call this feast? Because it's not named in the Old Testament, this. Why do they call it Jacob's trouble? Because Jacob must repent. Jacob must get right. He must sacri- uh, get, get himself ready to, to accept the sacrifice of the Messiah. And again, it's all over the place. The other term for it, another name, teshuva, repentance. I talked about that, that they're going to go through the days of awe to repent, to get their hearts right, penitent. And here's the deal. The rabbis say it themselves that the opportunity to change one's faith is made here. It's made here at this feast. And when we see this at the global level, they're right. And I already know what the count is. Two-thirds of Israel will decide not to accept Messiah. Only one-third of Israel will decide to do that, and that will be figured out and sealed at Yom Kippur, the second coming. We already know how that plays out. But you see how the feast is outlining this, giving Israel a chance to understand? And interesting enough, the rabbis would say, on this day, you make that 10 days of awe, you make your decision whether you're going to be in the book of life or in the book of death. Isn't that amazing? That's Jewish. Point number two, and this is the last point we'll deal with. The second parallel, notice a verbal command. Jesus utters a verbal command to John to come up to heaven. By the way, if John symbolizes the church, which I believe it does, the last command Jesus will give you and I is come up here. And we will have to obey that one. He says this, you go back to the text, it says, And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here. This is the Messiah's voice, and the Messiah's voice sounds like a trumpet, by the way. John heard this. Again, this is parallel with 1 Thessalonians 4. Look at this parallel passage that shows the actual rapture teaching. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Those are the ones, uh, believers who are dead in the grave. Their souls with Jesus right now in heaven, but their bodies in the grave. Okay? For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain, there's a, that, that remnant that's going to be alive that is coming, until his coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with what? A shout. With the voice of an archangel. The first shout is Messiah's voice. It's a military uh, understanding, the way Paul is demonstrating that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As a military commander would give the shout, and then his second-in-command would reiterate the shout, and then they blow a trumpet. That's exactly what they would do militarily-wise in that day. And that's how he says it's going to be in that order. Messiah will shout, give a call. The archangel will repeat it. And then that trumpet will go off. So it's a verbal command from Messiah himself. Interesting enough, this, let me take a little time out on this. The dead in Christ will rise first. What does that mean? All believers who are in Messiah, in the body of Christ, 
their bodies will be resurrected from wherever their bodies are at. And some people say, well, I cremated my loved one. It doesn't matter. God can reassemble the molecules. That's not a problem for him because in the book of Revelation, he pulls people out of the sea. He resurrects them out of the sea. What's in the sea? Well, the fish have eaten them. There's nothing left of their bodies. So what the Revelation is saying is that he can reassemble their bodies, no problem. He knows what their DNA is. So what happens in the rapture, and it happens very quickly, believers come with the Lord in the clouds, their souls, and their bodies are resurrected, and their body and soul is reunited and given a glorified body. Then it says they're the first order, like a military order. They get the first privilege to go up. The second order is those who are alive for it. Then are called up after them. So the dead first, and then those who are alive. So when I say the dead in Christ, and Paul says the dead in Christ, we're not talking about soul sleep or like a Seventh-day Adventist thing. No, no, no. Their souls are in heaven with Christ. So that's why Paul would say to be absent from this body, but to be present with Christ. So when people die as a believer, they go to be with the Lord. Okay. So there's this verbal call. Interesting enough, this corresponds with trumpets. This is another name for, the, for trumpets. It's called Yom Hazikaron, the day of remembrance or the memorial or the shouting for joy. Now, the day of memorial, the day of, of remembrance, when you see the term remember in the Bible, that it'll say God remembered them. That's an anthropomorphism. It's not, it's not like God forgot and then, oh, yeah, I forgot to go help them. It's not like that. It's a Hebraism. When God says, I remembered them, it means I'm going to take positive action towards them now. That's what remember means. I'm going to take positive action towards them. So this shout is corresponding with this term uh, of God remembering his believers and what he promised he'd do for them to take action on their behalf. And the action is to remove them, to get them out of the situation. You see this in Psalm 27. He has promised to remove us from the situation from the earth. Now, here's the interesting thing. The rabbis took Psalm 27. If you ever read Psalm 27, the rabbis took this as this passage that David wrote was for the Feast of Trumpets. But I want to show you a little nugget in the passage that refers to the hiding of believers. And notice where they hide. For in the time of trouble, Jacob's trouble... He shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his, what? Tabernacle. He shall hide me. He shall set me up high upon a rock. Where's God's pavilion? Where's God's tabernacle? It's in the third heaven. Psalm 27 is related to Feast of Trumpets. Feast of Trumpets is about the rapture. Guess what the rapture is saying? I'm going to hide you during this period of time. I'm going to remove you from this period of time and hide you with me. Oh, that's what Jesus said. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will comfort you that where I am, you may be also. Look at another passage in this. This is in uh, Revelation 3. I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I will keep you from the hour of trial to test those who dwell on the earth. The only place to be to avoid the judgments that are coming in tribulation is off planet earth. You can't be on the earth. If you're on the earth, you're going to get hammered. Now, as we move through the book of Revelation, you're going to see a term called earth dwellers. 
or those who dwell on the earth. It's a technical term, and it means that they're unbelievers. And it means that they're getting the punishment they deserve because those who are earth dwellers have been left behind. And whether they thought they were Christians or not, they're going to be left behind. The rapture is our blessed hope. It could come at any point in time. It can come today, come tonight. But for those who don't want to be with Jesus, those who are worldly Christians, the rapture is scary for them because they know that if they're believers, they're either going to be ashamed at His coming. This is 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Or if they played a game and were really not believers, they will be left behind. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.